0: And welcome to Flash Forward. I'm Rose and I'm your host. Flash Forward is a show about the future. Every episode, we take on a specific possible or not so possible future scenario. The show always starts with a little field trip to the future to check out what's going on. And then we teleport back to today to talk to real experts about how that world that we just heard might really go down. Got it? Great. This episode, we're going to start in the year 2314.
1: Wolf 1061C, Rocky, tidally locked, half scorched half ice, no life, former mineral mining base, watch for drag nets. Kepler 1229B, Rocky, tidally locked, multicellular life in Terminator line, single cellular life on dark side, often experiencing cultural turmoil, land at your own risk. K23D, K2-3, Leo, tidally locked, Half scorched half ice, do not send probes, zero success rate, no life, Sol 3399. Sector Z Z 9 Plural Z Alpha, mostly water, special note, also known as Earth. Only known case of planet sterilization. Please see special information packet for more, Planet of Interest. Earth. One of the universe's great mysteries. We know that life once flourished on this watery planet. We know there were once vast civilizations of both Hymenoptera and bipedal mammals. But today, the planet is sterile, and nobody knows why. Scientists have spent hundreds of years excavating the remains of the biological life on the planet, but can still make no sense of how the living beings interacted with one another, or how they all simply vanished. Here we'll explore several theories as to why life on Earth disappeared. Touch below to begin, or press, exit, to return to the main menu. Passing Sector 227 Active J Gamma. HD 40307 grams, K2.5V, small, warm Neptune without a solid surface, no life. LHS 1140 B, LHS 1140, Cetus, Rocky, single-celled life, do not send living probes, neural infections, quarantine all returning probes indefinitely.
0: So this episode was inspired by a paper written by a couple of guys, including David Sloan and Rafael Alves Batista.
2: Okay, so I'm Dave. I'm well, I'm David Sloan. I'm a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Oxford, and I work primarily on theoretical cosmology.
3: Uh, I'm Rafael Alves Batista. I'm a postdoctoral researcher here at the University of Oxford, and my main work is uh, in astrophysics and uh, particle physics.
2: Rafa and I are both working together on a project that we put together at Oxford called the Consolidation of Fine Tuning.
0: The Consolidation of Fine Tuning is an excellent band name, in my opinion. But in this case, it's a project that's basically trying to look at situations where there are really, really specific requirements that have to be just right in order to get a desired outcome. So one example of an event that requires very, very fine-tuning in order to get the outcome you want is life. The development of life on a planet only happens if a ton of factors line up exactly right.
2: And we're really talking about fine-tuning of uh, the galaxy and things about the habitable zones within the galaxy for the formation of sort of life and habitable planets, really.
0: The problem is that figuring out what has to happen to get life on a planet is really hard. We only have one example to look at, which is our own planet, and while there are plenty of theories for how life arose on Earth, nobody actually knows for sure how it happened.
2: In fact, we don't know a lot about what it takes for life to exist. We don't have really sort of good bounds on what it would take for life to exist, partly because we just don't know what life is outside the context of Earth.
0: Figuring out the odds of finding life on another planet has two parts. First, you have to figure out how often and what it takes to create life. That's pretty hard. But you also have to figure out how likely it is that life sticks around once it shows up. In other words, what is the likelihood that there are planets out there that might have had life before but don't anymore?
2: Even though something, a planet might be capable of supporting life, that doesn't necessarily mean that when you look there, you're going to see living things.
0: So they decided to tackle this problem from a different direction.
2: And so what we wanted to do was say, OK, maybe we don't know how life starts, but can we work out how it would get stopped?
0: And that is the question that led these researchers to writing the paper called The Resilience of Life to Astrophysical Events. In other words, what would it take to completely sterilize the Earth?
2: So, yeah, we're looking for what would it take to kill off life on planets that we are going to start looking at through telescopes over the next couple of decades um, because they look a bit like Earth.
0: So how do you figure out how to kill everything? You could do it the hard way by trying to model the environment and all the interconnected things that would have to fail to slowly choke out our vibrant planet. Or you could just pick an organism that's really, really hard to kill and focus on that, which is what they did.
3: So we have chosen the tardigrades because the tardigrades are, in principle, the most resilient form of life that we know.
0: Tardigrades! I can't believe that I have done 55 episodes of this podcast, and this is the first time that we're talking about tardigrades. Tardigrades! So tardigrades, as Rafa said, are these incredible little microscopic animals. They are also sometimes called water bears, space bears, or my favorite, moss piglets. So they're these tiny little creatures that are incredibly difficult to kill.
3: They can withstand very high temperatures, so temperatures very low as well. Uh, high levels of radiation, a thousand times the levels of radiation that would kill us humans."
0: They can live in hot springs, in solid ice, at the bottom of the ocean. They can live without water for 10 years. They're also the first known animal to survive in outer space, like outside the spaceship. Scientists once put tardigrades into space for 10 days, and they lived. The ironic thing about all of this is that tardigrades are incredibly difficult to kill except if you just squish them.
2: You can squish them between your fingers if you're particularly sadistic.
0: So they're not magic or anything, but they are incredibly common, so there are a lot of them.
2: It's not hard to kill an individual, but to kill all of them, you have to do something pretty extreme to get everything everywhere.
0: Plus, they live in all sorts of places, including the deep ocean, which means that if a catastrophic event happened on land, like an asteroid impact or a huge dose of radiation, that might not impact them because they'd be protected by all that water. And all of this led the team to the following conclusion. To kill all of the tardigrades on the entire planet, you would have to boil the oceans. That would expose even the hardiest little moss piglets tucked away in the deepest corners of the ocean floor to the heat and radiation that would kill them. And to boil the oceans, that's really hard to do.
2: Boiling the oceans requires a lot of energy. I mean, we are talking something like... um 10 to the 26 joules. To give you some sort of context, um, all the nuclear weapons in the world wouldn't make a dent on this. You know, there's... So, I mean, people often wonder, are we all going to kill ourselves in some horrendous nuclear war? Well, possibly for humans, but things living at the bottom of the ocean probably wouldn't even notice it had happened. I mean, it might go a bit dark for a while, but it's already dark down there. So it's an incredible, incredible amount of energy, and it really is phenomenally
0: big. To deliver that much energy, there are really only a couple of options.
3: Uh, We have considered the case in which the oceans are boiled by asteroids, supernovae, or gamma ray bursts.
0: So let's go one by one. Let's start with the asteroid.
3: We have actually calculated what Uh, which mass of asteroid would be needed in order to boil all the oceans. So if we take an asteroid or a dwarf planet or any object in the solar system or elsewhere, how much mass would this object have to have in order to reach the levels of energy that we need to boil all the water in the oceans on Earth? And uh, it turns out that this number, it's very big.
0: 1.7 quadrillion metric tons is how big it would have to be. I tried to find some good comparisons for 1.7 quadrillion metric tons to help put that number into context, and it was really hard. It's a really big number. The average American working full-time would have to work 250 million years to earn one quadrillion pennies. Does that help? Probably not. But maybe this will.
3: There are only uh, 17 or maybe 19 objects Uh, in the solar system that we know that have enough mass to boil all the water in the oceans.
0: So that's number one, the asteroid. Let's go to number two, the supernova.
3: So supernovae are large explosions. Uh, So it's essentially the end of the life of a star. So when a massive star dies, it explodes in a process that we call a supernova. A supernova emits a large amount of radiation.
0: We did an episode on what would happen if a supernova went off nearby back in season one. Uh, it would not be good for us as humans.
3: And it turns out that the supernova would need to be about 0. 0.14 light years away in order to boil all the water on the oceans. And 0. 0.14 light years, that's a ridiculous number because that's very small. The sun is eight light minutes away. The closest star to Earth after the sun, uh, Proxima Centauri, That's about 3.7 light years away. Therefore, there are not even stars close enough uh, to Earth that it would be a real threat for all forms of life.
0: Which means our tiny moss piglets can sleep well because a supernova is not coming anytime soon. But then there's the third thing that they looked at in the paper, which is a gamma ray burst.
3: The third one, finally, it's gamma ray bursts. So gamma ray bursts are not really well understood, but they are very energetic, bright, explosions in the universe, they are somehow similar to supernovae. However, the difference is that most of the energy is released in the form of a beam.
0: Here's a thing that I did not know before working on this episode. Gamma ray bursts are these mysterious high energy laser beams that shoot out from space and nobody really knows how they work or what they even are. But we do know that they are incredibly powerful. In just a couple of minutes, a single gamma ray burst can give off as much energy as our sun will during its entire 10 billion year life. And let me repeat, we do not know how these things work, what they are, why they happen, which is not terrifying at all. It's totally fine.
3: A gamma ray burst about 40 light years away would be enough to kill uh, all forms of life on Earth because these are very energetic explosions.
0: Some scientists actually think that Earth has been hit by at least one gamma-ray burst in the past. There are researchers who think that about 450 million years ago, a gamma-ray burst fried Earth, which led to the second largest mass extinction event in Earth's history. But even though that extinction event wiped out almost 85% of marine species, it didn't sterilize the Earth. Because it turns out that life is pretty hard to get rid of. I wanted to ask, because in the abstract, you write... The last sentence of the object is, surprisingly, we find that global serialisation is an unlikely event. Um, why is that surprising to you?
2: Okay, I wrote the abstract, so I should probably answer that. <laughs> uh, it's because I've always thought of life as being this very fragile thing. You know, um, it's it, it comes from the fact that I'm a naive and somewhat arrogant physicist who's heading into territory of biology here. Um <laughs> right? I mean, it, it, it it's clear demarcation on our point, you know, wandering into this zone. I'm sure biologists out there would have said, well, we knew this or we knew this about life. It's hard to kill these things. Why are you so surprised by this? But to me, it's genuinely shocking. You know, I mean, um, when I think of the number of things that could kill me, it petrifies me, right? And I wouldn't walk down the street. But when you think about sort of general life and you think about every sort of animal or every creature you've ever sort of known or met again it seems like it's relatively easy to kill individuals but then once you try and work out how to kill all of them or what it would take to kill all of them rather than how to kill all of them i'm not darth vader or something you find that even though individuals are fragile the entire populations are somewhat resilient and that to me was surprising i really thought that we were going to get the opposite conclusion when we started looking at this and we were going to say, okay, maybe the Earth's very, very special that we've actually survived here.
0: Um, Have you seen that XKCD comic uh, where it's like nothing is more annoying than a physicist encountering a field for the first time?
2: Yeah, I think actually my wife wants to tattoo that on me somewhere.
0: Um... (laughs) Rafa and David specifically avoided talking about humans in their paper. But this is a podcast for humans, I think, unless there are moss piglets listening, which would be so cool. So when we come back, we're going to talk about what it might take for humans to survive a cataclysmic event like a gamma ray burst or a giant asteroid. But first, a word from our sponsors. So in their paper, Rafa and David don't really talk about humans. And that's actually because humans are kind of complicated.
2: Now, for human beings, this is actually very, very difficult because unlike other animals, what we really have going in our favor is that we have access to technology. And so when we talk about sort of the ability of a human being to survive an astrophysical event, you have to think, well, do they get any warning that it's coming? What kind of technology do they have access to? So, for example, um, one of the things we thought about our tardigrades is, can you impact them with a lot of radiation? But, of course, you then think, for a human being, well, what if I built a submarine? Or if I built some kind of environment that I could put below the surface of the Earth? And I could access that kind of shielding, too, for a short time. Surely I would then survive also. So, actually, humans, I have to say, it's, it's a much harder question than sort of the raw analysis of sort of the biology. Because humans have access to technology.
0: While I was reading their paper and pondering all of the ways in which the Earth could become uninhabitable, I couldn't help but think about a series of books called the Broken Earth Trilogy, written by N.K. Jemisin, who also goes by Nora. The books center around a world where every so often the Earth rears up and basically just tries to kill everything.
4: I really just kind of was was doing a a who's who of extinction-level events that we've seen in our own world um, on repeated occasions. And some of them I just kind of was like having fun with. I mean, having fun in a completely sadistic, horrible, evil science fiction fantasy writer way. Plague of locusts. No, that's not good enough. Plague of spiders. You know, whatever. Um, What can I do that is just sort of weirdly... Uh, destructive, but you know also kind of getting across just how how harmful simple things that are messing with the ecosystem or simple things that sort of teeter the balance of our daily lives kind of out of true environmentally speaking oh
0: also there 's magic,
4: basically, I had a dream um of a woman who was, you know, walking towards me with uh, the badass power walk thing going on. But, um, you know, instead of like stuff exploding behind her, there was a, a mountain floating along behind her. And, uh, you know, this being a dream, I kind of somehow knew that she was going to throw it at me and I knew that she was mad at me. Um, and I woke up kind of wanting to know why she was angry and also how could she make mountains float. So... Um, <laughs> Uh, basically, from there, I came up with the premise uh, to sort of suit that dream of uh, people who had the ability to not necessarily make mountains float. Uh, they don't just like pick mountains up, um, but they can, you know, cause tectonic activity that raises a mountain or um, shatters it or whatever. So, um, you know, I established some some pseudoscience rules for it tried to work in a lot of uh, actual science, which kind of tends to make the pseudoscience magic BS go down easier.
0: (laughs) The Broken Earth trilogy is really, really good. And you don't actually have to take my word for it. Uh, The first book, the fifth season, won a Hugo Award for Best Novel in 2016. And then a year later, the second book, The Obelisk Gate, also won the Hugo Award for Best Novel. The third book of the series just came out, and I'm in the middle of it right now, so nobody send me spoilers, but it's really good so far. Anyway, a lot of what the book centers around are the ways in which humans could survive big, horrible, extinction-level events. Yeah. I mean,
4: individual humans are easy to exterminate. We are squishy. Um, nearly seven billion humans are a little harder to get rid of. Um, we're basically an infestation on the planet right now, not necessarily in a in a terrible negative way, but you know, if the planet is trying to get rid of us, it's gonna have to work really hard at it. We are not simply animals relying on our fur or our skin or whatever to help us survive. Um, we've got our ingenuity, we've got our our learned adaptations from from several millennia of trying to survive on this planet that is constantly trying to kill us just because that's what evolution is and we've learned to you know kind of retool ourselves fairly quickly um, when we need to so yeah I mean any major extinction level event is probably going to wipe out you know large numbers of us um, it will be horrific people will die people will suffer that is not a good thing um, but there will always be you know that one person who who happens to be in a tin can under the ocean when whatever, uh, you know, the thing happens. And, and when those people get back up on the surface, um, if there's enough of them and they're able to kind of band together, then we go on.
0: It's this banding together part that's actually a huge focus of the trilogy. The ways in which people do or don't work together to try and survive.
4: We have always survived better as as cooperative groups. Uh, we are we are social animals, um, and you know, rugged individualism sounds great, uh, you know, for for oh, I don't know, romantic fiction purposes. But in reality, it doesn't tend to work all that well. So when you look at actual history and you look at who actually survives disasters, it's the people that work together. Um, and the other thing that was kind of going on was my, my sort of, Tendency to to read the rugged individualism of of fiction and and react against that and be like no that's not realistic um, yeah I mean it's romantic it's fun it's cool we all love the the idea of uh, you know Mad Max as the loner staring romantically and brooding as he watches you know the world burn whatever um, you know there's there's a part of us that kind of likes that but. You know, I liked, uh, you know, Mad Max, uh, the 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 latest one, Fury Road. Um, I loved Fury Road, where you saw a bunch of women working together to to survive, and they were doing better than Max was. And you know, at the end of it, Max goes off to do his romantic brooding shit again, and I'm like, that's stupid, Max. Go back there and you know, and and eat, um, you know, hang around with these people that that seem to know what the hell they're doing. That's the nature of how actual human societies work, Um, you know, and it irritates me when I see fictional depictions of human societies that do not acknowledge the way societies actually function.
0: If a gamma ray burst boils the ocean or a supernova comes out of nowhere, well, humans are kind of out of luck.
4: Well, if it's a supernova, no, that's no, we're we're not going to make that.
0: (laughs) But... uh... But if it's something less than that, something that kills almost everything, then humans might make it. And unlike David, Nora wasn't really surprised to hear that it would be really, really hard to eliminate all life on Earth.
4: No. No, I mean, part of the problem is that I've got people sending me, like, weird science stuff all the time because they know I'm interested in it. So, you know, I've seen the uh, article about the sharks living inside an underwater volcano and, um, you know, I've researched tardigrades. They're, they're Tardigrades are badass as hell. The world will be inherited by tardigrades if we nuke ourselves, um, you know, or, or something else, um, you know, when you when you realize that there is life literally in every niche of the planet and probably in niches that we haven't even explored yet um you know there's life in volcanoes there's life in acid seas there's life in you know places that we think are are completely inimical and they are inimical to us but you know there's no oxygen there fine no problem the planet used to not have a whole lot of oxygen on it surprise things live back then too um So, I mean, life is tenacious as hell. I love the tenacity of life. The question becomes whether our life is tenacious enough to make it. Um, But, you know,
0: I guess we'll see. We might be. Or we might not be. Who knows? Maybe a gamma ray burst will just come out of nowhere and fry us. Why has no one told me about gamma ray bursts before this? It seems like an important piece of information to be aware of. (sighs) Okay. Okay. That's all for this future. I have to go stress out about Gamma Rays. Come back in a month for a new one. If we're still here, if we haven't been fried by a gamma ray. Flash Forward is produced by me, Rose Evola. The intro music is by Asura and the outro music is by Hussolonia. The episode art is by Matt Lubchansky. If you want to suggest a future that we should take on, send a note on Twitter, Facebook, by email at info at flashforwardpod.com. Passenger pigeon, whatever way you want to get at me, I'm always interested in hearing your ideas. And if you think you've spotted one of the references that I've hidden in the episode, send me an email at info at flashforwardpod.com, and if you're right, I will send you something cool. And if you want to support the show, there are a few ways you can do that, too. We have a Patreon page where you can donate to the show, but if that's not in the cards, you can head to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review, or just tell your friends about us. It really does help, I promise. That's all for this future. Come back next month and we'll travel to a new one.